Maybe someone will read for us 1 Corinthians 15, 45, 46, and 47. Go ahead, Brother Renz. And so it is written, the first man Adam was made a living soul, the last man Adam was made a quickening spirit, albeit that uh, was not first, which is spiritual, but that which was natural, and afterwards that which is spiritual. First man is of the earth, earthy, the second man is a Lord from heaven. Some of the language in this part of the chapter is a little bit tough because you have to have some underlying foundational understanding of what some of these concepts mean. What does it mean to be carnal? What does it mean to be earthy? What does it mean to be fleshly? And then if you're going to really be scholarly about it, you might even want to study what these different words are. I'm going to give you a few tonight, so it'll be one of those nights where I'm going to give you some Greek. And hopefully when it's done, you won't say it's all Greek to me. You have no idea what I'm talking about, but I'll give you some Greek words throughout to help clarify some of the things. But the fact that the first man, Adam, is called a living soul and the last man, Adam, is called a quickening spirit, that's unusual language. Are they the same words? Are they different words in Greek? They're actually different words. So there is a contrast of some kind being made here between the words that are translated living soul and the words that are translated quickening spirit. And it should tell us something about the difference between the first man and the last man, Adam. Paul is paraphrasing a little bit, really what's called conflating. When you conflate something, that means you're adding a little bit to it. I don't think he's doing it in any kind of a carnal way. I think it's certainly the Spirit inspired him to add these words here, and it doesn't affect the original passage that he's quoting from. Does anybody know what passage Paul would be quoting from when he makes the statement that the first man, Adam, was a living soul? In Genesis, when God breathed into him the breath of life and became a living soul. Yep, Genesis 2, verse 7, when it says, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. So Paul added a few <coughs> words here. He added first and Adam. Instead of quoting the man was made a living soul, he quoted the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. Now again, that doesn't do any injustice to the original statement that was made in Genesis 2-7. But what Paul's doing is using that statement and he's paraphrasing it a little bit. He's expanding on it a little bit to make a point. His point is that the very first created being was made a living soul. But he uses this title, the first man, Adam, because he's going to make a contrast with Jesus as the last man, Adam. That is who the last man, Adam, is, you know. It's Jesus Christ. Adam, the husband of Eve, was the first man, Adam, and the last man, Adam, is Jesus. It's going to tell you that at the end of the phrase that Brother Renz read for us in the 47th verse, it tells you who the last man, Adam, is. It says, the second man is the Lord from heaven. So there's a little bit of a contrast here. Who remembers what the Greek word is for soul? That's the Hebrew word. When you spell it out, it's spelled like it's psyche, but it's actually the Y. I don't know why they would transliterate it that way, because the Y in Greek is usually translated like a U. So it's most commonly pronounced suke. That's the Greek word for soul. First man, Adam, was a living soul, a living suke. The first man, Adam, was imparted life from God, but he failed in his ability to be able to impart it to others. What God wanted was to be able to give life to the first man, Adam, and then from that point forward, he wanted that couple, which consisted of Adam and Eve after he created both the man and the woman, 
to be able to impart that soul life onto others. He wanted them to be able to impart his image onto their progeny, onto their seed, onto their children. And when the fall occurred, that image was scarred, it was tainted, it was perverted. And now the first man, Adam, that was a living soul is not able to pass on the qualities that constitute part of God's image. This is one of the differences between the language that's being used here when it says the first man, Adam, was a living soul and the second man, Adam, was a quickening spirit. Anybody know what the Greek word for spirit is? These are ones I want you all to know well. They're such commonly used terms in the Bible, it would be good to just know them. Cindy, you're doing great in Hebrew tonight. (laughs) Ruach is the Hebrew word for spirit. Pneuma is the Greek word for spirit. So when it says he's a quickening spirit, if you were to translate it very literally, it would be a life-giving spirit or a spirit that has life that's able to impart it to others. When you see the word quick or quickening in the Bible, it means life, living. So he's not just a living spirit, but he's a spirit that's so alive he can pass on that life to another. There's the contrast between these two and those words. One of them was made a living soul, but he didn't have the life in him to be able to pass on to the next generation. He failed to maintain the connection with God that would have allowed him to pass that life down to his heirs. But the last man, Adam, is a quickening spirit. He's a life-giving spirit. He has enlivened himself, and he's able to impart that life to others. There's the major difference between the first Adam and the last. The first Adam was supposed to be able to do that. He did exactly the opposite. He's passed the curse down to all of his heirs. But those of you who've come in under the blood of Christ and who've received the Holy Spirit can break with your lineage back to the first man, Adam, and you can get in to the last man, Adam. The phrase used being in Christ. The contrast that you'll see in Romans is being in Adam. What do you think the difference is between being in Adam and in Christ? How would you simply explain the difference between being in Adam and in Christ? You can get real theological with it, real deep. And I like doing that, but I'm not just asking for a simple definition. What would the difference be between being in Adam and in Christ, if I stop talking long enough to let you answer the question? In Adam being the flesh? Someone's in Adam, they're in the flesh. Yeah. difference between life and death. Well, it is the difference between life and death. That's as simple as you can put it right there. That's right down to brass tacks, isn't it? If you're in Christ, you have life in you that will allow you to have a resurrection. If you're in Adam, you are still existing in a state that you may not receive a resurrection unless you get into right relationship with God. Being in Adam essentially means that you're still being guided by the nature that Adam passed down to you. You're still being directed by the flesh, like Brother Ron said. Being in Christ, if you're truly in Christ, you're allowing Christ to be a covering for you. That's what it means to be in somebody. They're your covering. They're what is over you. It's an odd way to word it, I suppose, but it's a very biblical concept. Being in something or under something represents being under its authority or its covering. So being in Christ means that you're under Christ's authority. You're letting Christ direct your steps. You really can't be in Christ and stay in Christ without the Spirit working in you, though, because it takes that kind of a power to stay in Christ. So there is a contrast made here. And I said the last man, Adam, is a quickening spirit in the sense that he is able to make others alive. He has so much life in him that he can pass it down to others. What happened to Adam, and you remember we have discussed this many times, The fact that Adam, when he sinned, began to die spiritually. Once he began to die, he didn't have the life necessary to be able to pass on to others. The life that he should have been able to pass on to others was quenched in him when he died spiritually, when he ate of the fruit. 
Adam's nature came from a fall. They both had to deal with the difficulty of being in a human body with the human limitations that come along with that body and the conditions that you have to deal with in terms of temptation. One succeeded in terms of resisting that temptation and one failed. Christ succeeded. The first man, Adam, failed. It's like they both had the same origin. One failed and one didn't. Well, I think the contrast that's being made here, Brother Lee, is they did both have the same origin in that they were created by the Spirit. But they had somewhat of a different origin in terms of where they originated. Adam originated out of the earth. That's why he's called earthy. Now, it's true that Adam later took on that carnal conscience. But Adam originated directly out of the earth, and Christ originated out of heaven. So there was a slight difference in terms of their origin. They weren't equal in origin, but they were equal in condition. The condition that the first man Adam had to deal with and the condition that the last man Adam had to deal with were exactly the same. They both were created in a perfect state. Now, mind you, Christ wasn't a man in his existence in eternity past with God. He was a celestial being. He wasn't a human. But when they came into the world in human form, they both were in the same condition. They both were created without flaw with the potential of failure. And the first man, Adam, failed, and the last man, Adam, did not. It's no more complicated than that. Now, we can get into a much deeper theological discussion if we discuss what kind of nature Christ had versus what kind of nature Adam had. Initially, though, he did not have the driving propensity. Adam. Right. He had the ability, but not the propensity. That's exactly right. That's how I believe it. I believe that the first man, Adam, had the capability to sin. It's clear he did because he sinned. But he didn't have a driving impulse, a propensity to sin. Once the fall took effect, you're in a somewhat more helpless state than Adam was when he was first created because now you've got a nature that is working inside of you that is pushing you towards sin. It's a propensity, a driving impulse to sin that you can't overcome without the power of God. You can't overcome without the interaction of God, without his grace and mercy, without his word and his spirit, without the blood of Christ. There's so many different pieces and parts necessary, but you cannot overcome that driving propensity to sin without the power of God. I don't want to necessarily go this far back and deal with the issue of their natures because that really isn't the context of our class tonight. But you have to ask yourself what kind of a measure of God's spirit that he gave Adam and Eve when they were created because they would have had to have a measure of his spirit if he expected obedience from them. If he expected them to be able to maintain their obedience, he would not only have had to create them by his spirit, he would have had to create them with his spirit. Do you know why I'm making a distinction? God created Adam by his spirit. It was through the spirit of God Adam was created, the breath that God breathed into him that made him a living soul. But he created Adam with his spirit. I mean the with in a little different way than by. I mean he gave him his spirit. Adam had the spirit of God. Now I wouldn't make the case that his heirs after that had the spirit of God in the same sense he was created with it. So there's a lot of pieces and parts to the theology of the nature that they might have had. And I'm not going to spend much time on that because the focus here really is just the contrast between the first and the last man, Adam. And there is quite a bit of debate about the nature of that first man, Adam, and the nature of the last man, Adam. The last man, Adam, we're talking about Jesus when I say the last man, Adam. I want to reiterate that. When we're talking about the last man, Adam, did he have the same nature Adam had before the fall or did he have the nature Adam had after the fall? I'm not going to answer that. But that's right at the crux point of a very difficult 
contentious issue. What kind of nature did he have? We'll talk about that another time because it isn't, as I said, the context of this class, and it is a very deep subject. Suffice to say that Christ was dramatically different as the last man, Adam, than the first man, Adam, after the fall, in that he could pass on life to his heirs. He could pass on his life to his children. It's one of those unusual phrases that are used. It's only once or twice in the entire Bible. You can find this language, by the way, where it speaks of the children of God as the children of Christ. It doesn't use that exact phrase. But in the second chapter of the book of Hebrews, quoting the Old Testament, I'm trying to think of exactly how that phrase starts. I guess I'd probably start a verse or two before that. I don't have it sitting in front of me, but if someone starts me off, I'm sure I can get it. It's right before it talks about the fact that Christ didn't take on the nature of angels, but he took on the nature of Abraham. That was made him a little lower. That was made him a little lower than the angels, and this is right from the 8th Psalm, and has crowned him with glory and honor, and has set him over the works of thy hands. Put all things under his feet. For in that he put all things under his feet, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not all things put under him. Is that how it says it? Now we see not all things put under him, but we see Jesus Christ made a little lower lower than the angels for the suffering of death. Crowned with glory and and honor that he should taste death for every man. There is a contrast in those verses right there between the first and the last man, Adam. Did you realize that? He made Adam a little lower than the angels. And let's go back to that verse again. What's the verse right before that, Brother Kosa? But one in a certain place. There we go. There's the beginning of the thought. But one in a certain place testifieth, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man thou visitest him? Then we go into the next verse that we started reading with. Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels and has crowned him with glory and honor. That's Adam. That's the first man, Adam, that was made a little lower than the angels and crowned with glory and honor. He was supposed to be the legate. I've used that word a lot when I'm talking about his role. He was supposed to be the legate, the representative, the image of God. He was made in a way that wasn't quite on the level of the angels. He might have exceeded their level, by the way, if he had been faithful. If he had been obedient, I would imagine that God would have raised him up over the angels. Because that's what's going to happen eventually with the bride. There's a time coming when man is going to be instituted over the creation as the ruler over creation. What Adam lost, that first dominion that's in Micah. That's what the context of Hebrews here is. I want you to keep me on track, Brother Coase, and make sure I'm quoting this right. I want to jump into where we were just at. Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels and has crowned him with glory and honor. And you've set all things. I'm not going to say every word perfectly right because I'm trying to modernize it. You've put all things under his feet. But not everything's been put under his feet yet. Now here's where the contrast shifts. Here's where now we see Jesus. That was the fact that the race of man, Adam and his seed, were intended to have glory and honor and sit over the creation. But unfortunately, Adam fell. And his seed has continued to stay in that state. But now we see Christ, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. That he, by the grace of God, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For it became him. For it became him by whom are all things and for whom are all things, when bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Christ was made perfect through the things that he suffered. That's where we get that context from. Read on. What's the next verse? For both he that sanctifieth and, and they that sanctifieth all are of one. Mm-hmm. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Yes, here we go. Now this is leading into the verse that I was originally looking for. Though this whole context of this does play a part in this discussion. 
Saying, I will declare thy, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. Is that how he says it? Yes. In the midst of the church will I praise thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. I will put my trust in him. And behold, and behold I and the children that you've given me. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Now that's talking about Christ. God has given Jesus some children. They're God's children, but he's given them into Jesus' care. It's one of the only places in the Bible that you see Jesus filling the role of a father to children in this type of a sense. Almost always when you hear this kind of language used for people that are spiritual children, they're, <laughs> I better qualify that because you can be the children of the devil, be spiritual children. People that are righteous spiritual children, they're called sons of God or they're called children of God. But this is one of the few examples, one of the only examples in the Bible where Christ is referred to as having children. He has children because God produced those children and then gave them into Christ's care, into his keeping. So I am the children that you've given me, is how it says it, isn't it? Yeah. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood. He partook of the same, which is, now we're getting, unfortunately, right back into this topic. And we can come back to it sometime, but it's right into the topic of what did he partake of? Their flesh and blood, he was a partaker of the same. The same what? Well, the same flesh and blood condition, the same flesh and blood body that they had. Remember that phrase, flesh and blood, because we're going to need to call that back to remembrance here a little later in 1 Corinthians 15, because this language is used again. What does the phrase flesh and blood mean? Is it intended to be taken literally, literal flesh and literal blood in this kind of a passage, or is it meant to refer to a human condition? I just want you to think about that because it's going to be relative to where we're going through in 1 Corinthians 15. That was the verse I was looking for, but several of those verses actually support what we're talking about tonight, and the idea of this contrast between the first and the last man, Adam. I and the children that you've given me. So there are children that Christ has been given, and he played a role, by the way, in bringing them to birth. He wasn't the one that produced them as children. It took God through his spirit to do that. The Father through the spirit produced the children, but Christ played a role in it. You remember the statement that he made to his disciples when he said, I have to go back to the Father. I've got to return to the Father. If I don't return to the Father, the Comforter won't come. The Spirit won't be poured out. You can't be a child of God without God's Spirit. And so what Christ carried out in his life and his death and his resurrection purchased the right not only to free you from your past sin, but also to have the Spirit poured out on you so you can maintain that condition of being freed from your past sin. You'll be empowered there's a couple of verses in the Bible that refer to Christ in this kind of a role of a father over children. Can you think of any? There's one particular verse, I want to see if you know, that refers to Christ with this kind of a title that he's in what appears to be a paternal role over children. There's a number of other supporting scriptures that reinforce that, but they don't call him by those kind of titles. There's one place in the Bible that very distinctly calls Christ a father. The everlasting Father. Isaiah 9, 6 recalls him the everlasting Father. That doesn't necessarily mean that he was the Father that was everlasting. A lot of the technical translations translate that, that he's the Father of eternity. He's the Father of the everlasting age, which means it's not referring to his nature in terms of him being everlasting necessarily. It's referring to what he produced that's everlasting. He's the Father of something that's everlasting. He's the father of eternity. Now, you know what that's referring to if we take it that way? It's referring to the fact that he opened up the gate through which you can go in and have eternal life and immortality. So he's the father. You notice if we go back to Hebrews, 
you'll see this language used several different ways in Hebrews. One example of it is the author. He's the author of eternal salvation. You know, that's exactly the same thing as being the father of eternity, the author of eternal salvation. That's the fifth chapter of Hebrews, isn't it? Yeah. They're talking about when he was in the days of his flesh. Verse 9, 5, 9. And being made perfect, he became the author. Yes, being made perfect. This is talking about the same thing we just read in (laughs) Hebrews 2, where it said, it became him by whom are all things and for whom are all things to make the captain of their salvation Perfect. perfect through sufferings. There it calls him the captain of their salvations, talks about how he was made perfect. Here in Hebrews 5, is talking about how being made, perfect. being made perfect, he became the author of salvation. That's essentially the same thing as what Isaiah 9, 6 says. The father of eternity, the father of the everlasting age to come. He opened up the door so that man could enter into an everlasting and eternal relationship with God. My mind was on Galatians 4. Mm-hmm. It talks about the time appointed of the father, the the child, although he's an heir, is still a servant. Mm-hmm. It goes a little deeper in theology, but the idea that there's a time appointed to the father, mm-hmm. that he calls him a son, he's grown up. And he becomes a son over his own house. And that's exactly what happened with Christ. He became a son over his own house. It was God's house, but he passed that into the care of Christ, exactly like we saw earlier in 1 Corinthians 15 where it uses that incredible language so critical to understand the Godhead properly, where it makes some of these statements about how Christ would reign until all things were put under his feet. And after all things were put under his feet, then he would be subject to the one that put all things under him so that God could be all in all. So all these scriptures cohesively come together and it makes sense out of the overall subject. But I'm jumping around a little bit because a lot of this you find in a lot of different places in the Bible, some of the supporting scriptures for this. You might use 2 Corinthians 5.17 as a supporting scripture for being in Christ where it says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away and behold, all things are made new. When you get in Christ, you have a new life. He on some level becomes the author, the father, the agent and instigator of you having new life. And as long as you stay in him, you'll remain in that state of life. I do believe, going back to an earlier point, that the first man Adam, referring to the one we usually call Adam, this is the only place in the Bible Christ is called Adam when it calls him the last man Adam. But I do believe the first man Adam would have probably also been able to be called a quickening spirit had he been obedient. Because really what this phrase quickening spirit is talking about is, as I said a few minutes ago, the fact that you've got life within you that is capable of producing more life. We're not talking about physical life. Human beings can create physical life. They can procreate if they have the health and the conditions in their body to be able to do so. I'm talking about spiritual procreation, to be able to create somebody spiritually and pass down the lineage you've received. Now, Adam does spiritually procreate, just not in a righteous way. Adam is spiritually procreating. We've talked about this quite a bit too. I always go back to the statement made about Seth when Seth was born that it says very specifically Adam had a son in his likeness and his image. And I think that's interesting. It reverses those. But I think there's a clue in that, that it reverses it. It wasn't God's image and likeness that he produced Seth. And that's what God wanted. God wanted Adam and Eve to have children at some point, And he wanted those children to be in God's image and likeness. You know, if Adam had retained God's image, any child he produced in his own image and likeness would have been in the image and likeness of God? Because if Adam had stayed in God's image and not broken the pattern, not broken the image, 
not broken the reflection he was supposed to be, every child he produced would have been made in the image of God. They would have been made in Adam's image too because Adam was in the image of God. That's exactly how God and Christ interrelate, by the way, when it calls Christ the image of, of the invisible God. And now going back to Hebrews in the first chapter where it says, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, who is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Christ is the express image of God. That's what Adam was supposed to be. So when language like that is used for Christ, this is one of the most confusing issues in someone explaining the Godhead is they misunderstand why this language is being used. And they say Christ is the image of God as if that makes him equal with the Almighty. And really what it's saying when it says Christ is the image of God is he is the reflection of God in the way Adam should have been, a perfect reflection of God. He's the image. He's the reflection. When you look in a pool of water, you look in a mirror, you see your image. It's you you're looking at, but the image isn't you. The image is a reflection of you. The first man, Adam, was supposed to maintain this perfect reflection of God. His whole life should have been a reflection of the personality of God. His whole life should have been a reflection of God's characteristics. His whole life should have been a reflection of God's character and person. And instead, he broke the pattern. He broke the image. He put a ripple of sin in that pool that showed such a beautiful image when he was created. And now Christ had to come to restore the image of God back to man. And that's really what he's done. He's the image of God in the way Adam was supposed to be. You follow that or do you want to discuss it some? So now everybody that Adam produces, now I have to qualify because we're using two different Adams in this passage, aren't we? Everybody that the first man Adam produces is produced in his likeness and image. They're all earthy. They're all carnal. They're all fleshly. Everybody that Christ produces is produced in the image of God. Now they have to maintain that image just like Adam had to maintain it. They've got to remain obedient. They've got to stay in relationship with God. And that image will be maintained and it will be refined until finally it is a perfect reflection of God. That's the core responsibility we have as Christians is to try to maintain what we've been given, to try to hold to the truths and the faith and the relationship and all the other components that go into your Christian walk. If you want to make this a little bit simpler, the first man, Adam, was animated by the Spirit. The last man, Adam, is the animating agent of the Spirit of God. Let me say that again. The first man, Adam, was animated by the Spirit of God. That's why it's calling him a living soul here. He was a vessel of clay that God breathed into and animated him. It doesn't mean he animated him like a puppet. It just means that he gave him life and animation just means you're able to move and operate. You're able to have life and the capability of movement and thought and all the other things that go into being animated by the Spirit. The difference between Christ is he was animated by the Spirit too, but he's also an animating agent of the Spirit of God. Do you follow? Meaning he's able to animate other people. He has the Spirit flowing through him like a conduit and he's able to animate others. What he did allows him to animate others in the creation. It's exactly what the first man Adam was supposed to be able to do, to be that agent of God that would pass down through his, I hate to get into the genetics, so I won't wade into the science of that, but to pass down through his bloodline, spiritually speaking, to the next generation, that relationship with God that would allow them to be filled with the Spirit and animated by that and led by that and retaining the image of God from generation to generation. 
that does play right into the issue of the nature of the first man Adam versus the nature of the last man Adam. But it's such a deep subject, as I said, that we're not going to try to wade into that when we're in this passage. Maybe one of you will read 1 Corinthians 15, 48 to 50 for me. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Now this is really reiterating what I've been saying about the last series of verses. If you are an heir of Adam, you are inheriting the earthy, carnal elements that Adam has passed down to you. You're going to have to get out of that condition so you can receive the heavenly nature that Christ gives. So notice it says, as is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. Our father Adam passed down his carnal nature to us. And as is the heavenly, such also are they that are heavenly. Every single one of us have borne the image of the earthy. There's nobody in this room, there's nobody that has ever been in this room, by the way, other than in spirit form. <laughs> let you figure that out on your own. There's nobody that's ever been in this room other than in spirit form that has ever borne anything but the earthy, initially. Meaning every single human being that's ever been in this building, every single human being that's ever been a member of this church, all begin by bearing that earthy image. And anyone who has come into contact with God and God intends to change has the opportunity to bear the image of the heavenly. Meaning once you come into a relationship with God, he wants to change that from an earthy image, a fallen nature, into the divine nature. And the last part of that that Brother Rodney read, Now this I say, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now that one we'll talk about in a moment. I'll come back to that because there's something else I want to say here. One verse you might put alongside this issue of the critical need for you to get out of the earthy, carnal state you began in is John 3, when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus. And, and in the midst of that conversation, of course, it's where we see this phrase, born again, and the idea of what it takes to get into the kingdom, what it takes to even see the kingdom, to have a vision. You know what it says to see the kingdom? You can take that several ways. It might mean to be able to see what's going on in the kingdom, to be able to have a spiritual understanding of what's going on in the kingdom. There's two different phrases used in John 3. One of them says that without the Spirit, you can't even see the kingdom. Without being born again, you can't even see the kingdom. The other one says you can't enter into it. And let me explain real simply what it means to see it. It doesn't mean suddenly you realize there's a church over there, and I never saw that before. It's not physical sight. When you see the kingdom, it doesn't mean you never saw it before physically, and now you see it. It means you never saw it before spiritually. You never comprehended the kingdom. You know, you can be in it and not see it. You know how many people have sat in church and not seen the kingdom? Isn't that horrible? Well, I'm telling you, there's people that do it. There's people that have been in church for years that never saw the kingdom. I hope it changed at some point, but there may have been a period of their life when they couldn't even see the kingdom. They could physically look around and see it in a physical sense. They could see the walls. They could see the people. They might even see on some level the moving of the Spirit. By the way, you'll see that later in the chapter because the Spirit's like the wind. It isn't visible, but you can see it, things it affects. So they might have seen people being touched by the Spirit. They might have seen healings. They might have seen other things that are evidences of the work of the Spirit going on. But they didn't necessarily see the kingdom. You've got to have a vision to see the kingdom. Not just ocular vision. You've got to have spiritual vision to see the kingdom. You've got to have your mind opened up to it. 
And it's not just seeing it, like I said, and seeing a church somewhere and saying, there's where God's kingdom is at. Or seeing a group of people or seeing a person and saying, that's part of God's kingdom. It's that you can understand where you're at. You have a comprehension of the kingdom. I don't mean you understand every tiny detail of scripture regarding the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. I mean that you have a conception of what the kingdom is. Your mind has been opened up to it. Do you realize you're never going to have that conception at the level God means when he says to see it without the Holy Ghost? That's why it says, unless you're born again, you won't even see the kingdom. Because it takes the spirit within to open your eyes to the depth and the complexity and the incredible richness of the fabric of the kingdom of God. It is layered. And you're not going to really see it until you have the spirit working in you. Now, it also says in that passage in John 3 that except you're born again, that's John 3, 5 to 6, isn't it? Where it says, Jesus answered and said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of the water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, entering into the kingdom of God isn't walking into a church house. Any more than seeing the kingdom is being able to tell there's a church over there. It's being a part of the kingdom. It's being... uh, uh, a citizen of the kingdom. It's being involved in the work of the kingdom. And that doesn't happen until you've been empowered to have that level of operation going on in your life that will allow you to labor in the kingdom in the way God wants you to. So everybody born of Adam's lineage, as I've said several times already, bears Adam's likeness and image. They're earthy as he was. But we have the opportunity of our image changed. And you can have that reshaped and reformed into the image of God. That's what it means when it says we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. That's the heavenly nature, the divine nature of God. The image the first man did not retain, you and I have the opportunity to attain. Meaning we can get it back, what the first man Adam lost, what he didn't maintain. And all that it means when it's talking about the image of the heavenly is the nature of God. We want to have the nature of God. We don't want to have the nature of Adam. There is no permanent inheritance in the kingdom until the corrupted nature has been made incorruptible. That is critically important, and listen to every word that I'm saying. There is no permanent inheritance in the kingdom until the corruptible nature is made incorruptible. Now you might add to that, it's an extension of that, there's no permanent life in the kingdom until the corrupted body is made incorruptible. And that is part of the subject of this chapter It's all through this area we're reading in is the idea of the corruptible being changed into an incorruptible body. But you'll never get an incorruptible body until you've got an incorruptible nature. Nominal Christendom often reverses those. They say you can go down with a corruptible nature and come up with an incorruptible body. That is not going to happen. And let me show you how simple the proof of that is. You do know that we are to follow in the course of Christ. That's very simple biblical truth. We're to take up our cross and follow him. There's one phrase. We're to measure up to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Christ is the example for us, isn't he? Christ is the benchmark. Christ is the pattern setter. He's the path breaker, so to speak, in this weedy jungle that Adam created for us. Christ went in and broke the path again. He went in and broke a path. You know what that means? You cut open a path so someone behind you can see the direction to go. He set the course for us. It's the same course that Paul said when he said, I finished my course. I've kept the faith. Now, Paul might have had an individual course, like we talked about in one of our Bible studies lately. It's specific to his calling. But the course of his salvation was broken. That path was broken by Christ. He laid out the pattern. Now, let me just ask you a simple question. Did Christ go down to his grave with a corruptible nature and rise with an incorruptible body? Or did he go down to the grave with an incorruptible nature and rise with an incorruptible body? 
Is there too many corruptibles and incorruptibles in there for you? He went down righteous, he'd come up righteous. He went down with an incorruptible nature. Yes. And he came up with an incorruptible body. Why would you think it would be any different for people that are supposed to follow in his footsteps? Why would you think that God can give us the same things he gave Christ? Do you realize that's what it will take for you to have an incorruptible nature? It'll take the same spiritual machinery Christ had working in him. You know what it was? It was a connection to God that allowed him to maintain that image that I've been talking about. He had the spirit operating within him from the very beginning. You and I, when we receive the spirit of God and a vision and God begins to empower us, and if it's the right time and the right conditions and the other things that are necessary to produce the level of purity that God expects, do you realize if all those conditions are in place that can produce the level of purity that was produced in the life of Christ, we should not expect that you can go down in a corruptible condition and come up incorruptible. The only way you're coming up incorruptible is if you go down incorruptible. If you go down corruptible, you're going to come up corruptible and you're going to have to still go on into a condition where you find yourself incorruptible or you'll be lost. And we use that scripture quite often. You go back to the statement of Solomon when he said, where a tree falls, there's where it lies. Where a tree falls, there will it lay. Wherever you go down is where you're going to come up. You go down in an incorruptible condition, you'll come up incorruptible. We've been talking about the first resurrection. And that's the distinctive of the first resurrection is that individuals that come up in that resurrection went down incorruptible. Christ was the first. The language we've used throughout discussing this resurrection. He's the first fruits of them that slept. He's the firstborn from the dead. Meaning he's the very first one to come up in that type of a resurrection where there is no death ever again in front of that individual. And you and I can be a type of first fruits as well. You and I can partake in that type of a resurrection too if God takes us on to perfection through that process. Word incorruptible means that you pass the place where you can be corrupted. That's right. There's several ways something can be incorruptible, Brother Lee. That's what I was referring to a minute ago. You can be incorruptible in your nature and you can be incorruptible in your body. We're not incorruptible in our body or nature right now. Right now, we've got corruptible bodies. Disease can enter in and death will enter in because our bodies are wearing out all the time. They're constantly in a state of decay. That's the corruptibility of the physical body we're in. We have a corruptible nature too. There's stages to that. The blood of Christ doesn't change your corruptible nature. It washes away all the conditions that that corruptible nature caused. Whatever that corruptible nature caused when you're covered by the blood is dealt with. But in order for you to get your corruptible nature dealt with, you're going to need the Spirit. That's why he said, except you be born of the water and of the Spirit. You can't enter into the kingdom of heaven. You're not going to be able to live in the kingdom of heaven for certain. You're not going to be able to be a permanent resident of the kingdom of heaven unless you have all the elements necessary for that life to be produced in you, that purity to be produced in you that will merit you the right to live in the world to come. Or better yet, will merit you the right to rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years beside him as part of the bride company. I want to make this point one last time before we move to anything else. You will never have a permanent inheritance in the kingdom until the corrupted nature has been made incorruptible. And you'll never have a permanent body until your corruptible body has been made incorruptible. So that change from the image that you received from the first man, Adam, to the image that you have the potential to receive from the last man, Adam, begins with spirit baptism. It's completed through the ongoing work of the spirit, and the final elements of the refining process of fire baptism is what brings it to its fullness. Colossians 2, 11 to 12 is a scripture that would go along with that. 
says, In whom also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also you're risen with him through the faith, the operation of God, who raised him from the dead. Those statements in Colossians 2, 11 to 12 go perfectly side by side with the statements Paul's making in Romans 6 that we were quoting here in one of the last Bible studies. I'm not going to go through them, but I'll give you a few passages that would be good to read along with this subject. Romans, the fifth chapter, if you want to study the statements that are made regarding Adam being the origin point for passing down the fallen nature, passing down the curse to us. Romans 6, 7, and 8 are a description of this spiritual warfare that goes on within and the spiritual resurrection that's necessary to break that bondage that we were laboring under. That begins, as I said, when you're circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. That's not a physical circumcision. That's a spiritual circumcision. What is the circumcision made without hands? Gives you another clue in the next statement. When it says, putting off the body of the sins by the circumcision of Christ, there's several ways it's described here. The circumcision made without hands. Circumcision of Christ. Now, why would it say circumcision of Christ in comparison to who else's? Well, in comparison to the circumcision that Abraham was given, the physical act of circumcision, in comparison to the circumcision of Moses, if you want to call that, do you realize if you were obedient to what amounts to the circumcision of Moses, that language isn't used in the Bible, but a couple places are pretty close, you'd be able to stay within the confines of the kingdom? Go all the way back to the 17th chapter of Genesis when God first began to institute that right as part of his requirement to Abraham. He essentially said, I think it's the 14th verse of Genesis 17, that any uncircumcised man-child that doesn't go through that process, his soul shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. That's a pretty strong statement. And that'll be true of anybody under the new covenant too. If eventually you don't go through that process of spiritual circumcision, that Colossians 2 calls the circumcision of Christ, you'll be cut off from the people too. You can go on for a while without that, Because God has grace under this covering, just like the Israelites went on for a while in the wilderness without going through physical circumcision, I talked about here lately. But eventually, in order to be a part of the kingdom, you have to go through that process. Now, we're talking about a spiritual circumcision, a circumcision made without hands in Colossians 2.11. The circumcision of Christ, it says right after that. And then it gives you another little clue. It says, buried with him in baptism. You also are risen with him through the faith, the operation of God, who has raised him from the dead. That's not talking about being physically raised with him either. That's not talking about the fact that you had a physical resurrection. This is talking about people that were still alive and whose bodies were still dying in a physical sense that Paul's making these statements to. When you're buried with Christ in baptism, every single baptism, I'm sure I'll talk about this Sunday because we're going to have water baptismal service. Every single baptism is a picture of death, burial, and resurrection. Every baptism. Water baptism is a picture of death, burial, and resurrection. Spirit baptism is a picture of death, burial, and resurrection. That's really where I'd begin this point of being buried with him in baptism. When you receive the Holy Ghost, you're buried with him in baptism. You die out to receive the Holy Ghost. But that's not the end of that burial. You've got to be buried with him in fire baptism as well if you want to be perfected. You've got to die completely. The circumcision that went on during the period of the patriarchs and on up through the period of Moses and on into Israel's history for some 1,400 years after the period of Moses was what allowed you to be considered a part of that kingdom if you were one of the men of Israel. But now to be a part of the body of Christ, you've got to have the circumcision of Christ. 
which is when you receive the Holy Ghost. The very same thing we're talking about in John 3. When you're born again of the Spirit, your heart is circumcised. A change happens inside of you that allow you to begin to fight this battle against the old nature, which God intends to culminate in an overcoming condition. When we use the word overcome or overcoming to refer to what an overcomer does, what are we talking about overcoming? The nature. We're not talking about just overcoming just one sin out there or just overcoming the world that's around you and saying, I'm not worried about what they think or feel. We're talking about overcoming ourself. That's the greatest battle. If you overcome yourself, there's nothing outside of you that's going to be able to affect you once you've overcome yourself. So overcomers are those who have overcome their nature. So I gave you Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. Those are good passages to read along with this subject. You could certainly add to that Galatians 5, starting around the 16th verse and going on up through the end of the chapter, the 26th verse. There is some debate in this last passage we just read in 1 Corinthians 15 about what flesh and blood means. I brought it up a few minutes ago. When it says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, there have been some that have believed that that means that no believer who resurrects will have a flesh and blood body. That isn't what we believe, you know. We believe that somebody that comes up in a second resurrection state will be in a terrestrial body, which is a flesh and blood body. You might even argue that those that come up in the first resurrection might have some measure of flesh and blood body. What do you think of that? You think a celestial body can also be a flesh and blood body? Somebody read Luke twenty four thirty nine for me. You have it in front of you, Brother Costa? Yeah. Go ahead. Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for spirit hath not flesh and bones, as you see me have. Now, was this before or after the resurrection? <laughs> and this is Christ. Do you think anybody's going to have a better body than him? At the very least, he appears capable of appearing in a body that has flesh and bone. It doesn't say blood there. But he's at least appearing in a body that has flesh and bone, meaning it isn't a spirit body like what we think of right. as an angel that is passing through something dimensionally, what we tend to think of when we think of a celestial body. A celestial body can materialize into a form that is fleshy. You have to make a distinction between the word fleshy and fleshly. They're different. God wants to write on the fleshy tables of your heart. That's not the same thing as fleshly. Fleshly is carnal. Fleshy is just material. Jesus obviously had a body that could be touched and interacted with, and he called it flesh and bone, didn't he? Doesn't mean he couldn't change into a different form, by the way. We talked about that the last time. We talked about celestial versus terrestrial bodies. My personal conception is that a celestial body, a first resurrection body, is capable of transforming somewhat into different forms, meaning you could be in a form that could walk through a wall, like Jesus did when he appeared to them in the midst of them, without the door opening, he appeared in the midst of them. You also appear to be able to appear in a form that can be touched and can interact with the world around you. You certainly see angels who were in celestial bodies appearing in forms where they could eat food. Several times in the scripture you see that from the angels that appeared to Abraham and sat down and ate with Abraham and Sarah. Lot, when the angel appeared to Manoah and his wife, to you know who Manoah is, right? It's Samson's father. It appears that angelic beings are able to interact and eat. You do realize that Jesus, one of the last examples in the book of John, Jesus sits down and has a meal with them after the resurrection. Down on the seaside, he sits and has a meal. That's not the only time. He might have 
taken some food when he sat down with the disciples that he traveled with on the Emmaus Road. Remember when they realized it was Jesus when they saw him break the bread? Did he eat any of the bread he broke? So a celestial body, or what you might call a glorified body, or what you might refer to as a first resurrection body, appears to be able to interact with its environment in the way that flesh and bone can interact. Now, we couldn't make the argument from that verse that there's blood flowing through veins in that body, but at the very least, you would have to agree that Jesus in his glorified post-resurrection body could at least appear in a flesh and bone body, couldn't he? He lost his blood, though. He lost his blood on the cross. All right, Brother Lee. I'm just going to let you have that. I'm not going to even answer that one tonight. I don't know why a spiritual body would need blood. They live off of the Holy Spirit. This is not my answer. I'm just doing this to give you a hard time, all right? God said the life of the flesh is in the blood. Jesus said he had a flesh and bone body. Was that flesh body he had dead or alive? Well, it was alive. Certainly it was. The life of the flesh is in the blood. <laughs> That isn't my viewpoint. I'm just trying to give you a hard time, Brother Lee. You know I love you. I love to give you a hard time, too, because you're such a deep thinker. I'm not going to even answer that tonight. That wasn't my answer, by the way. I was just, for his sake, giving him a hard time. I'll give you a couple verses related to the term flesh and blood being used, where it can be used to possibly describe something more general than just literal flesh and blood. This might help you out. There has been argument over whether or not the term flesh and blood here means flesh like your skin and muscle and tissue and blood like the blood flowing in your veins or if it's just a poetic statement in some of these passages to refer to the human condition, the fact that you're in a human body. It could be in some passages at least that when the term flesh and blood in quotes is used, it's a poetic way of referring to being in a human body. So when it says flesh and blood shall not inherit the kingdom, it could just mean by that that somebody in a human decaying body cannot inherit the kingdom. Not that it's literally meant to be referring to flesh or blood in any literal sense, because like I said, Jesus was in a body of flesh and bone, and he obviously was a part of the kingdom. So I don't think it was meant to be taken literally, breaking it down to pieces like that and saying you can't have any flesh on your bones if you're going to be a part of the kingdom. I think it just means flesh and blood is referring to humanity in general. Matthew 16, 17, when Jesus was responding to Peter's revelation of his messianic position, he said, flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father. What he meant by that is no human agent revealed this to you. He didn't mean flesh on somebody's body and blood. He meant that to refer to human beings. A human being hasn't revealed this to you. It was God through the Spirit. Galatians 1.16, when Paul's talking about going up to Jerusalem, he says, I conferred not with flesh and blood. That just means I didn't confer with any other people, any other human beings. One more, it's pretty obvious one in Ephesians 6.12, where it says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, rules of the darkness of this world, and spiritual wickedness in high places. He means we don't wrestle against human beings. We're wrestling in the invisible realm. There is some tradition among the Jewish rabbis using the phrase flesh and blood to refer to the corruptible nature of man compared with God's eternal nature. Not again referring to flesh as your material substance you're made of and blood as what's coursing through your veins, but just as a poetic way of referring to humanity. Now I brought all that up because there are some who say that you can't have a body made out of any flesh if you're in the resurrection. You have to be in some spirit body. But that's not biblical. I just told you, Jesus was obviously in a body that had flesh on it when he appeared. Whether or not that was the highest form of body he had access to is another question. 
Jesus may have been able to appear in different forms. I wouldn't doubt that for a second. And he may have a form of body that he could be in that is not a flesh body at all. But when he appeared to them and wanted to interact with them, he appeared in a body that is essentially flesh and bone. Whether it had blood is another question we'll have to answer another night. When he was here, he could disappear them in the sight of people. He passed through them and they didn't even see him. That's right. Now, was that just that the Spirit blinded them for a season in some way? They didn't see him? There's the problem. Did that <laughs> lack of them seeing him, did it originate with their sight or with the fact that he changed his constitution somehow? That he changed into a form they couldn't see. I'm not sure that was the case. I think God just clouded their vision so that he was able to pass away from among them. I don't think in his human body he had access to the same kind of extra dimensionality that he had in his glorified body. I always thought that passing through the midst of him wasn't quite like passing through the midst of a door, but the idea that just going through the crowd that they couldn't touch him. I think God clouded their eyes. He did that in other times. There's times he blinded people. The angels blinded the men of Sodom, didn't they? Those angels blinded them, you know, because they were wanting to handle them. Mm -hmm. So there must have been a capacity in the form they were in that they could have been touched. Quite often when angels appear, they must be appearing in some type of a tangible form that can be touched. Because of the way they interact with their environment when they appear. It doesn't mean an angel couldn't appear in a purely spiritual form. I think they can but I think when they choose to interact with men, they appear in a form that appears like men and has a lot of the qualities of a man. Rodney is very excited that no matter what the resurrection holds for him, he's still going to be able to eat. 1 Corinthians 15, 51-52. Who has that that can read it for us? Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. We shall be changed. So we're not all going to sleep, and that is one of the simplest proofs for the fact, just like in 1 Thessalonians 4, that there are going to be some people who do not die who will be there when Christ returns for his bride. By the way, this whole context of this latter part of 1 Corinthians 15 is not the second resurrection, it's the first. So there'll be some that will not die. They'll be alive and remain. They'll still be standing there when Christ returns for his bride, Brother Lee. I just heard you say a while ago they all had to go through the fire. Yes, they do. But fire baptism doesn't have to destroy your body, but it does have to destroy your nature. It doesn't have to annihilate your body. It doesn't have to end your physical existence, but it does have to end the corruptibility of your nature. So if you're going through an extremely trial, you can call that fire. One of these times we're going to get into fire baptism, and I'll come back to that. Don't forget you brought that up, because I want you to bring it up again. We'll get into fire baptism, and that'll answer a lot of those questions. So we're not going to all sleep. That is a parallel with the fact that in 1 Thessalonians 4, there'll be some that are alive and remain. Not all who merit a first resurrection will have to undergo physical death, but everybody that merits a first resurrection will have to undergo a death to self. There's the real issue. You'll have to completely die to self to merit a first resurrection, but you may not have to physically die. We shall all be changed. Changed from a corruptible mortal body to an incorruptible immortal body. The word changed, by the way, is the Greek word alaso, and it means to be transformed, to be altered in the condition that you're in. Here's a question for you, and it should be pretty obvious. It's right there in the text. 
how quickly are we going to be changed from the body we were in to our new body if we're alive and remain, or for that matter, if we died? In a moment, in a twinkle of an eye. The word moment there is atomos, A-T-O-M-O-S. We get our word atom from that. To the Greek philosophers, the atom was what they considered the smallest unit of existence. Now, it is the smallest chemical-based unit, but we found an atom can be split, haven't we? The Greek word atomos, that's translated moment, means a period of time so small it cannot be divided anymore. That's how quick. Isn't that amazing? Well, that is. That's how quick your body will be changed. A period of time so small it can no longer be divided. Now, we can even divide seconds up, can't we, into milliseconds and so on. So imagine the quickness. Isn't it interesting that the Spirit inspired this word to be used, something that is so minute it can no longer be divided into any other units? Essentially means a point of time so small it's indivisible. And the word twinkling is repay in Greek. It means a sudden quick motion. And essentially what it's referring to, if the eye, it says a twinkling of an eye, so a sudden quick motion of the eye, it could be almost nothing but a flicker of your eye, blinking. To prove how quick that is in terms of your perception, why don't you, no, don't do this tonight. You won't be listening to another word I say. But I was about to tell you, see if you can figure out how many times you blink in the next 30 minutes. Don't do it because you'll not only give yourself a headache and be very irritable by the end of the night, but you won't be listening to what I'm saying. You know how many times we blink and have no idea we're doing it? Now, there's times we close our eyes for a second or we blink and we can tell we did it, but there's so many blinks, so many times your eyes flicker shut and open, you don't even know we're doing it. That's just how seamlessly this change is going to be from our corruptible into an incorruptible body. And just as quick as atomos, as an indivisible point in time that you can't even divide up into a shorter, smaller segment. When does this change occur? At the last trump. I want to make this point because it's very important to understand how we view the resurrection versus somebody going immediately into heaven. The dead are not raised incorruptible and changed until the trumpet sounds. If there was some life prior to that, is it corruptible life or incorruptible? It'd have to be corruptible because there is no incorruptible life until the trumpet sounds. If you were in a corruptible condition, wouldn't that be pretty miserable to have to be in a corruptible condition, especially if Peter and Paul and some of the others are now existing in a corruptible condition? How long can you exist in a corruptible condition? Are you dying? Are you decaying? Is your hair falling out? You know, either your hair starts falling out or it just keeps growing. You know, one of the two is going to happen. It's like people's ears. I read somewhere that your ears never stop growing. So if you got old enough, there's no telling what they might look like. Maybe I shouldn't have told you that. You might be thinking about that for the next 30 minutes. Between that and blinking your eyes, I think the session might be over tonight. You guys are never going to keep up now. Everybody will be thinking about their ears growing and how many eye blinks they got. But I'm pretty sure that's the truth. You see if I'm right about it. So it takes the trumpet to raise the dead. It takes that last trump to raise the dead incorruptible. I myself am a little uncertain why somebody would think that the dead will be living somewhere prior to the trumpet call. When the scripture is so clear about the trumpet call being the element that raises the dead. The dead aren't raised at the moment of physical death, but at the time of the last trump. And that's a very specific chronological period. The last trump doesn't sound every time a believer dies. 
And the last trump doesn't sound every time an overcomer dies. The last trump is a very specific period in time, meaning that there can be no dead raised incorruptible. There can be no eternal life and immortality until the last trump. So prior to the last trump, prior to that very specific chronological period that constitutes the sounding of the last trump, I don't think that you can have any kind of conscious existence. Colossians 3, 4, it starts with a reference of time. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then, how do you like that? When and then. If it wasn't clear enough that this is talking about a period in time, when and then. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. Which means there's no one going to be appearing as Christ in glory until he appears. And his appearing is his next coming. 1 John 3, 1-3 says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, and every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. That's pretty clear too. It doesn't appear yet what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. He doesn't appear every time a person dies. His appearing and his coming are a very specific chronological waypoint. The last trump that I'm talking about is the one that's referred to in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. The salient passage is when it says, The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort you one another with these words. This is describing the fact that we're going to meet the Lord in the air, so shall we ever be with the Lord. You notice this occurs at the last trump. This doesn't happen at the moment of death. This doesn't happen at the moment of moving out of your body in some sense. This occurs at the last trump that you'll be with the Lord. Let's go ahead and move on into 1 Corinthians 15, 53 to 56. Who's got that in front of them that can read it for us? For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and the mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. There's a couple words here. I'm not going to overly define them. I'm just going to get you started on them. The word that's translated incorruptible is the Greek word aftharsia. There's no corruption working inside the body of that person that would shorten the duration of their life. When you're incorruptible, that means there's no corruption inside of you that would shorten your lifespan, that would be working inside of you to shorten your lifespan. The word immortal here is athanasia. And immortal generally does refer to durability of existence. Now, I've usually made the contrast between eternal and immortal and said eternal is the duration, the length of existence, and immortality is the durability, the fact that your existence can't be taken from you. You've got an immortal existence. That's all I'm going to say about tonight. There is a distinction between something that's eternal and something that's immortal. Eternal is, again, length of existence, duration, and immortality is durability. It's the fact that you can't be destroyed. God and Christ are both eternal and immortal. 
1 Timothy 1.17 refers to him as the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. Almost exactly five chapters later, 1 Timothy 6.16 refers to him as the one who only hath immortality. I've said I make a distinction between something that's eternal and something that's immortal. I'm going to give you a simplest example in the world. Adam and Eve, and for those of us that would believe angels have the capacity to fall, were eternal beings. But they weren't immortal beings. As long as they had not sinned, they would have continued to live without any end in sight. They would have remained eternal. But it would take an act of God to make them immortal, meaning no longer capable of being destroyed. We don't know how long they were in the garden before the sin occurred. Now, I don't think they were in their hundreds of years, but they were living in an existence. I want you to consider this for a second. Do you realize God never told them they could not eat of the tree of life? until they ate of the tree of knowledge good and evil. Then they were cut off from the tree of life, and he even made the statement that I am going to separate them. I'm going to modernize this statement. I'm going to separate them, cut them off, barricade away the tree of life. He did it behind cherubim and a flaming sword. And keep them from going in to be able to eat of the tree of life, lest they eat and live forever. This is proof of the difference between eternality and immortality. That doesn't mean if they ate of the tree of life, God could never destroy them ever again. Because he never told them they couldn't eat of it. They might have been eating of it during that time they were in the garden before they ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Have you thought about that? Taking of the tree of life and eating it doesn't mean you're immortal. It'll give you eternal existence, but you can still be destroyed. In Adam and Eve's case, we have no idea if they ate of the tree of life. But God didn't want them to continue being able to have an eternal existence. So he cut them off from the tree of life. And when he cut them off from the tree of life, he cut them off from the possibility of having an eternal existence. But they weren't immortal. You understand the difference? They had to have been at least potentially eternal. But a being that's eternal isn't necessarily synonymous with a being that's immortal. I said there have been eternal beings. Adam and Eve are the example of that. And as I said just a moment ago, for someone that would believe angels have the capacity of free will and they can fall, they would have to be eternal, not immortal, if they can be destroyed. A being that can be destroyed is not immortal. They might be eternal. Let me try to make it simpler for you. There's a difference between something not dying and something that cannot die. Adam and Eve, up until they ate of the fruit, were not dying. I don't think death was in the members of their body at all. They were not dying. There was no corruption in them. There was nothing failing in those perfect bodies God had made for them. There was no corruption that was causing decay. There was no bondage of corruption. But they were still capable of being destroyed. So they were living in an eternal state for a period. See, eternality doesn't mean it has to go on forever. It means it has the potential to go on forever. The only way you'll have a life that will never end is if it's immortal as well and it can never be destroyed. That's the whole purpose of the gospel, you realize, to produce both immortality and eternal life. 2 Timothy 1.10 is the scripture we use for that. Our Savior Jesus Christ, he has abolished death and brought immortality and life to light through the gospel. And Romans 2.7 talks about those who are faithful in their labors in the kingdom. It says, them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory, honor, immortality, eternal life. There's another interesting point in this passage. It's the word that is translated put on, where it says this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. It's the Greek word enduo, 
And it means to put on something like a garment, to close yourself with something, to wrap something around you. Some people have made the case, and maybe this is what it means, that that would mean that you would still have some of your own identity. You're not just being transformed from one creature to a totally new creature, but that the person that you are is still there. You're just being covered by eternal life and immortality. Dear Sister Carol used to ask this question every time we got on the Doctrine of the Resurrection. Am I going to know my husband when I see him in the resurrection? Will I recognize him? And my answer to that was always pretty general because I can't answer that with specificity. I can't answer that without it being something of a theory. And that is, I would imagine you would almost have to know that person. Whether you knew them by the appearance that they were in or whether you knew them by their characteristics that kind of shone through whatever appearance they were in. We've used Jesus as an example for that. When he broke that bread, they didn't recognize him physically, but they knew they were in the presence of Jesus. Mary didn't recognize him initially. When she came to the tomb, she thought it was a gardener until he spoke to her, until he interacted with her, and then she knew it was Jesus. So it certainly could be capable. You could appear in a form that is not familiar to your loved ones when you come up to the resurrection. Maybe, maybe not. You could also be in a form that is, but some have actually made the case here that the fact that this means closed on means you stay who you are in terms of your individual characteristics and being, but you're wrapped up in a covering of immortality and life. You're the same person in terms of your characteristics, in terms of what makes you who you are. You're recognizable to people, but that you're clothed in a garment of immortality and eternal life. Starting with this 53rd and 54th verse, the subject of this is the house that we're longing for, the new body that we're going to receive, and the hope of that, the corruptibility and mortality that's going to be swallowed up in life. The parallel passage that goes right hand in hand with this is 2 Corinthians 5, 1-4. There are elements of 2 Corinthians 5, 1-4 that could refer to the first or second resurrection, but the context of this is without doubt talking about the first resurrection. There are just some elements that could refer to any resurrection. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon as our house which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. This is the same language and the same kind of subject matter we're dealing with in 1 Corinthians 15. These Greek words are worth knowing. The word house is the Greek word oikaterion. It means a dwelling place, a home, or a habitation. Notice that word house is used either for your house you're living in right now, your body you're living in right now, and for the body that you're going to receive that's going to be an eternal body. So it's just a general word for the body you live in, whether it's a temporal body or an eternal body. The two other words that are used, though, are a contrast when it says, if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, the word tabernacle is the Greek word skenos. It means a tent. And you can see why that would be referring to a temporal body, a body you're not always going to have. A tent conveys the idea of something that you pull up once in a while and move it, you know. It's not a permanent residence. But the other word is, the word that's translated building when it says we have a building of God. It's the Greek word oikotome. It's a building or structure. It's intended to be permanent. It's not like a tent that you pull up and move around. It's something you build to stay there in a permanent sense. Right now we have a temporary body. We've got a body that's going to go the way of the grave. We've got a body that even if we are alive and remain when he comes, it's going to be changed into a permanent form, a permanent house that we're going to live in. 
If you receive a celestial body when you move out a live soul, and it's not the overcomer's permanent home, but temporary dwelling, it seems like it would contradict this. Someone that would teach the idea of moving out a live soul quite often makes the case that when your soul moves out, it moves into a celestial body temporarily until you receive your permanent body. That's really how a lot of nominal Christianity looks at it, if you understand what their theologians are teaching. You go up into heaven to be with God when you die, but that's not your permanent form you're up there in. You'll be reunited with a permanent form when the physical resurrection occurs. But see, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense because you do realize that this house that you're going to receive will be a permanent building. You know, if you were up in some kind of a life in heaven at death or by moving out a live soul and you're in a temporary life of some kind, that would completely contradict this verse. It says that your building is a permanent habitation. That's what the word building means. Not a tent, not a temporary dwelling place. And notice when all this occurs that we're longing to be clothed upon. It's the exact same terminology that's being used in 1 Corinthians 15 about the first resurrection when that physical resurrection occurs. There's another verse that goes along with this, Philippians 3, 20-21. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Doesn't this seem like it's giving a time element as well? We're looking for our Savior. And when he appears, he's going to change this corruptible body we're in, our vile body, into one that's like his. If that occurs any time before he appears, it would contradict this verse. If you get a body that's not vile prior to Jesus' coming, then it would contradict this verse because it says that we're looking for his appearing, and that's when he's going to give us a new body like his and change our vile body. Does that mean then that prior to his next coming, you're going to be living in a vile body? You see how those verses kind of tighten down this view that you don't truly have life until the resurrection? Last two verses. Who has 1 Corinthians 15, 57 to 58? Go ahead, Sister Leslie. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Yes, it is through Christ that we're given the victory. It's through his blood that we're saved from our past sin. It's through the Spirit that was sent as a response to his death and his resurrection that we're adopted into the household, into the family of God, and we're empowered to stay there. That's what God wants. He wants to adopt children and keep them in the house. One of the promises about the resurrection says there'll be a pillar in the house of the Lord. They'll go in and they'll come out no more. God wants to adopt people into his household who never leave home. God wants you to be a permanent resident of his house, his kingdom, his economy. All of our victory is through Christ. It's through his blood that we were broken loose from the chains of our bondage, that past sin that we could never have been released from except through his blood. It was his death and his resurrection that merited the outpouring of the Holy Ghost, which now allows us not only to be forgiven of our past, but to be changed in the present and to continue to be changed in the future until we finally come to a place where we've grown into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ unto a perfect man. I like that Paul completes this whole section discussing the resurrection in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians with a strong word of exhortation and encouragement. Be ye steadfast, unmovable, 
always abounding in the work of the Lord. The motivation that should keep us in a state of increasing spiritual growth and should keep us laboring in the work of the kingdom and keep pressing toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus is the whole subject of this chapter. Be ye steadfast in what? In your service to God, in holding on to God. Unmovable. Don't let anything move you, not only from your hope, but from your relationship with God. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Meaning that you've got to be in a continual state of growth. It doesn't just mean that you swell and shrink and swell and shrink. Always abounding, not sometimes abounding. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. There's a motivation that Paul's been talking about this whole chapter. Your labor, what you're giving, what you're sacrificing, the covenant that you're keeping with the God of heaven has a reward at the end of it. And Paul's been talking about that reward this entire chapter. The potential reward is the hope of the resurrection of the dead. 